This is If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles' breakup. Welcome to episode two. This two-part episode is all about John and Paul in January 1969. We'll explore all the drama of that epic month, the songs, the movie, the secretly recorded lunchroom tapes, the creation of Let It Be, all leading up to a giant double wedding. Good night, Paul. Say good night, John. Good night, Paul. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of The Breakup. I thought that you would realize That if I ran away from you That you would want me to That I got a big surprise So in part one, we discussed 1968. The Beatles started the year with Paul's engagement to Jane Asher. We find a John Lennon wholly committed, almost obsessively so, to the Beatles. And we discuss how John at some point contemplated an affair with Paul that apparently never came to fruition. The group traveled to India in February, where they write most of the songs that end up on the White Album. Paul and Jane head home after a month John stays in India for an additional three weeks and falls into a massive depression. He returns home and spends the next month unraveling. John and Paul travel to New York City in May to launch Apple, where Paul has a rendezvous with photographer Linda Eastman. John meets Linda for the first time in a limo ride to the airport. And as soon as they return home, John has another identity crisis, eats some more acid, declares himself Jesus in a Beatles board meeting, and later that evening invites Yoko Ono into his home and begins dating her. Within a month, John separates from his wife Cynthia, Paul and Jane break up, the Beatles go back to the studio. John and Yoko start doing heroin, collaborate on a few side projects, and John starts bringing Yoko into the studio with the Beatles, which sometimes creates great tension. After a few months of living like a crazed bachelor, Paul gets serious with Linda Eastman and she and her daughter move into Paul's home in London. Finally, in November, the Beatles release the White Album. In terms of themes, we laid out and examined what a transformational year 1968 was, particularly for Lennon and McCartney. How the year began with a relationship fully intact, with the deeply committed John Lennon and a dedicated but distracted Paul McCartney, and how it ended with both men in new relationships, but almost estranged from each other. 
We trace some of the potential reasons for this, how Paul may have inadvertently triggered some of John's insecurities and fear of abandonment, either through his engagement, his early departure from India, or some form of real or imagined rejection. We hypothesized that John may have believed that Paul was not as invested in the relationship and in reaction made a move to a new partner. We show that John brought this new partner, Yoko Ono, into the studio both as security and support, but also as provocation to his other creative partner. We see Paul is going through his own personal turmoil, eventually finding his own life raft with future wife Linda Eastman, and we also discuss how Paul may have misread some of John's actions and unintentionally exacerbated the situation. These high-stakes mind games magnify their issues so that by the end of the year, we find the famously tight Lennon-McCartney partnership in tatters. So we see them coming back in January, and John is ambivalent, but I don't think John's ambivalent about being in the, the, the Beatles. I think he's just spent and... Tired. And tired. Yeah. You know, he comes back with one song. If he felt, which he describes, he felt like a, like a bad songwriter, and he wasn't any good, and he knew Paul was creatively on fire for two years. For two years, he felt inferior. And he said he got his groove back with Yoko after India. He's like, ha-ha, I showed you, Paul. I could do good work. Right? After the glow of the White Album wears off. And now he's got to go back into the lion's den with Paul, right. who's got and like 23 songs. Whatever, <laughs> Paul's like, know? yeah, and seems to have like a giant stock pull-up pile again. I mean, it would be exhausting to right. be Paul's partner. So, of course, John is like, oh, shit. He doesn't want to feel like he's dead weight. And I think he feels, for whatever reason, he feels that way, and he thinks that Paul sees him that way. In in reality, he kind of played all his moves. Not that everything he did was just for Paul. I think part of it was for himself. Part of it, he likes being with Yoko. He loves the attention. Yeah. But then I also think he's coming back with this slight, you know, question mark about, is there anything there? To Did say, I miss something? Like, is, do we still have a thing? This is my point. Like, if he's wondering, oh, is, is is Paul in? And then he hears Paul's songs, which everybody else takes as like, oh, wow, Paul's so in love and heartbroken. It's like, oh, okay, but, but did you listen to the actual songs? All the songs are about throwing in the towel. All the <laughs> songs are about like, well, that's over. You know what I mean? <laughs> Paul's point of view is like, well, this is ending, and I'm sad about it, and I'm just going to grieve about it and go ahead and go through my emotions about it. Right. And John's like, "Are you fucking? What are you doing? What do you mean you're grieving? I'm <laughs> right. We right aren't. Here. We aren't broken. I'm not dead. We haven't broken up. What, what are you doing? You, we're, I thought we were Lennon McCartney. <laughs> my initial impression was that Paul was sad because John was disinterested in the band and immovable in his commitment to Yoko, because that's what I've been told by every book ever. So I concluded that Paul was writing sad songs about losing John and the band. However, my view has evolved and become more nuanced as we've looked more closely at John's actions at his music and some of his behaviors in the Let It Be tapes and have taken into consideration what John has said about how he was feeling at that period. 
you know, in his interviews in the 70s. Well, and I think also part of the problem is that people over-empathize with Paul and they just sort of assume that he's being acted upon. Like he just has no free will or no choice in the matter. He's just kind of like stuck with this shitty situation and he's, you know, suffering. So people just feel bad for him. And then yeah. so they don't try to get underneath his actual emotions and take into account all of the work he's doing, all of the things he's dealing with, everything he's trying to balance. And, you know, they don't also give any real analysis to his songs other than like, oh, they're sad, so he must be sad. And then they tend to think of John as, as just like a god with no vulnerabilities. It becomes a different story when you actually put yourself in John's shoes and when you empathize with his point of view. Because everybody seems to stop looking at John's internal emotions and internal life the minute Yoko comes onto the scene, assuming that she takes up every every minute and every thought that goes through John's head. And, you know, he, he stops being a normal person with multiple thoughts, you know? And he seems to be very one-dimensional at this point. They're both very one-dimensional at this point. And so when we look at Paul's contemporaneous comments, the themes of his songs and his behaviors, we recognize that Paul has much more power and agency in the situation than has he's ever been given credit for. It seems almost unbelievable that we have to say this, but to really understand what people care about, you have to look at their behavior, not what they tell you. So that's what we're trying to do here. We're not basing our interpretation of this breakup story on what we were told to think after the fact. We're actually looking at what each party is doing at the time and what their behaviors actually reflect about how they feel. You know, so the, the correction to the narrative needs to come from both sides. We believe that John was much more invested than it is traditionally assumed, and Paul had much more power than he is commonly credited with. John can't help but get re-engaged with Paul once they start playing together. And we actually see a lot of collaboration. As much as people talk about it being terrible, we see a lot of collaboration between the two of them, a lot more singing and harmonizing together. And we see John really trying in his own way to connect with Paul. And, you know, and Paul is trying to connect in his own way by keeping them together and musically engaged, right? Right, right. So they're trying in this period I think that we see it as kind of like that in some ways this tr attempt to connect is a do or die point between John and Paul. We don't see John as ready to leave. We see him trying to communicate and renegotiate. If the White Album shattered the Beatles dynamic, then Let It Be could be them coming back together to see if they can repair and move forward. It's a negotiation, but rather than a creative one, it's an interpersonal one. And the core tension between John and Paul may involve how to evolve their relationship and what they want and need from each other. I think, you know, a vacation might have been 
good for them, given that they just had a really big year. The year I mean, they'd worked nonstop. However, I think that one thing that may be missed is how creatively on fire Paul is. And that, you know, people sort of mistake it as being him being a workaholic, which he clearly is. But I just sort of wonder if, you know, like geniuses go through these huge peaks of creative yeah. um, productivity. Of course. And, and I think that he can't stop at this point. You know, he's just been like, he's just been doing Mary's album with Donovan, mm-hmm, gone and mm-hmm. written a book at, you know, Hunter's Place <laughs> for two weeks. He's written like half Five the songs. Five songs in for... the toilet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know. He wrote one think... he doesn't even remember at like a pub one night. Oh, right, right. That, that Panina. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> He's fall down drunk and wrote them a song as a tip that right. they made into a big, <laughs> like, big hit in Portugal or something or Brazil. But anyways, but I, you know, I think that's not, like, because people never look at it from Paul's point of view, like he may not be able to stop at this point, you know, yeah, that he may that be too. driven by a creative force that we just can't really understand. That's a great point. That's a great point. And like John at the same time is glorified as being like, you know, what did Lewison called 1969, like his greatest year, or like he's on fire or whatever. It's like, he shows up with zero songs. <laughs> he's like, it's good, it's good to be John Lennon. You show up with no songs and they're like, greatest year ever. <laughs> exactly. What a leader. What a leader. Exactly. Exactly. And he was leading from behind. It's his he's leadership <laughs> style. I think that is true that, you know, in this period, he's always like, oh, he's a stupid workaholic. But I, like, right. I honestly think that Paul probably couldn't stop. You look at these people, like Mozart and Beethoven, they go through all almost these periods exactly. where they can't sleep because they're almost manic from you know, having all these ideas. That's he literally describes things like that. He literally describes waking up and like having songs in his head that he has to write down and like having right, he sneaks visions. Down. And yet people just go on and on talking about what a genius John is and how like right. Paul is just some schlock. It's like you're so stupid. Just because this guy doesn't walk around calling himself a genius, because because Paul walks around going, "I'm normal." Hey, I'm super normal. I'm really yeah. normal. I'm Which is totally normal. what totally what a normal person does. Right? Exactly. I'm like, are you like? Do you know anything about how people work? If one guy walks around going, "I'm a genius," and the other guy goes, "Me? No, 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 no. No, I'm normal." No, I'm really normal. I swear yeah, I to God. what normal people do, am I not? Exactly. And that's sort of my point about, you know, that his his year of productivity or this period from, you know, 68 to mid-69 is incredibly productive. Like, you know, when you think of it, he wrote like The Backseat of My Car and Hey Jude and Let yeah. It Be and Long and Winding Road and The Abbey, you know, right. a lot of it, The Medley and Get Back and all of these songs and, 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 I honestly think that he just, he wasn't sensitive, maybe. He was on fire. But it's kind of like, let's just appreciate the fact that he was, you know? Yes. Let's celebrate him for actually producing all this shit yes. that we love and, like, worship. Okay, so going into the let it be filming before filming starts apparently the beatles had a meeting with michael lindsey hogg the director of the film and 
Lindsay Hogg wrote about it in his autobiography. And he writes about this bizarre meeting that John shows up to without Yoko, which is very unusual. Okay. As the meeting was drawing to a weary close, John, not this day with Yoko, who hadn't seemed particularly connected with what was going on, said he wanted to play us a tape he and Yoko had made. He got up and put the cassette into the tape machine and stood beside it as we listened. The soft murmuring voices did not at first signal their purpose. It was a man and a woman, but hard to hear, the microphone having been at a distance. I wondered if the lack of clarity was the point. Were we even meant to understand what was going on? Was it a kind of artwork where we would not be able to put the voices into context? And was context important? I felt perhaps this was something John and Yoko were examining. But then, after a few minutes, it became clear. John and Yoko were making love, with endearments, giggles, heavy breathing, both real and satirical, and the occasional more direct sounds of pleasure reaching for climax, all recorded by the faraway microphone. But there was something more innocent about it, too, as though they were engaged in a sweet, serious game. John clicked the off button and turned again to look toward the table, his eyebrows quizzical above his round glasses, seemingly genuinely curious about what reaction his little tape would elicit. After a palpable silence, Paul said, Well, that's an interesting one. The others muttered something, and the meeting was over. Yeah. So I love that Michael Lindsay Hogg is taking it so seriously. I do, too. (laughs) He's like, oh, interesting. I wonder if it's about world (laughs) That's what I thought, too. No, it's just a sex tape. Just a sex tape. tape. (laughs) Yeah, he attributes so much, like thinking and intellectual and artistic so artistry to it yeah it's like one of those satires of like you know <laughs> right exactly <laughs> people thinking long, something is art uh, yeah. about the holocaust or something it's like <laughs> no my dog puked or you know, exactly but even he says once he finds out he goes as uh, there was something innocent about it too as though they were engaged in a sweet serious game like what does that like, mean oh god i don't know i think he's trying to be charitable or give them the benefit of the doubt or something or I, right i don't or right. maybe he meant maybe he believed it i don't know yeah, I, I think I think you're right. He's trying. He's giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're artists and that there is a purpose other than provoking. What What do you think the pro- purpose of this was? I think it's to provoke Paul, <laughs> specifically Paul over the other two. Yes, because John doesn't do anything like doesn't do any provocative sex stuff with the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, seemed, they were they were all there. I mean, you know, they were in the room. He didn't corner Paul in the broom closet <laughs> and make right. him listen to this. Right? He, yeah, like, well, he, better in front of an audience, though, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. He's, uh, yeah, and I think he's doing it in a public situation because it's, he wants to embarrass him. If the line keeps being... Does this bother you? I right. brought in, her into the studio. Whatever he keeps doing that's escalating, it was like, oh, oh, now I'm actually going to give her your song to sing. Right, right, it's right. Like, now she's on the album cover with me. Now, naked. Now, now we're going to actually do it naked because <laughs> just yeah. the two of us together is not enough. And then, you know, what, what, what's left? Sex tape. Yeah, and then, and then beyond that, it's like how more can 
can I violate our our space, our creative space, our relationship, our partnership? Like, in what other ways could I violate it until you finally fucking do something? Right. What, what is it? Do I have to change my name? You know? Yeah, well, that, that kind of worked, actually. You got a reaction from that one. John has done a lot. You know, like you, you have to give cre- credit to John is that he didn't give up easily. He didn't just say, well, you know what, I, I met Yoko and therefore I'm done. As much as Jean Jackets might think that, you know, all of these things are not just coincidental. They're not just, you know, because John doesn't even think about it. All of these things are done to provoke a reaction. And what does he want? Here's the question is, what does John want from Paul? You know, what is he looking for? And I think that he wants Paul to react. You know, if one of his complaints was that he couldn't get Paul's attention in early 68 or enough attention or he felt like he wasn't being appreciated. Well, if you're doing outlandish attention-grabbing stunts, logically, it's to get attention. You know what? He's doing all these things. He's not. He didn't leave the Beatles. He just brought in his partner to poke his other partner and say, hey, you know what? This is the new situation. What are you going to do about it? And so I think that, you know, he's looking for some kind of, he's looking for attention, but also a response. And I think that that's one of the main questions that we have or that we'd like to discuss is, what does he want? Does he want Paul to fight for him? Does he want him to say, no, 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 this is not okay at this point? I mean, yeah, I think the jean jacket pushback would be like, what, what? That was their whole artistic whatever, like their whole artistic goal was to use sex to provoke people or something. I don't, you know, but I agree yeah. that he's being rebellious and he wants attention and he wants to shock people. That's the thing is like, I think it is literally just for shock value. You you could put some sort of deeper meaning on it if you sat down. Like, I could play that game with you all night, all night, like like a parlor game. Like, show me anything, and I will give you a really deep analysis of it. Right, right, right. It's very easy. You can bullshit some significance into the butthole film. Of <laughs> you, right. you know, but it's really just about, like, she's just trying to get famous. I find a weird dissonance between the fact that she makes this comment that neither one of them noticed when people hit on them and they would never hit on somebody else. Like Yoko sort of portrays them as not particularly hot. All there's all the sexual stuff is performative. Well, and the reason is the reason that's given is the most gibberish nonsense of it. Like all the books are like, well, he was doing that. He was so sexual because he was just so fucking horny for Yoko all the time. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? When guys are horny, they don't do naked album covers and make right. sex tapes and then make their friends listen to them. Like what? <laughs> they might they might just actually have sex. You know? Exactly. Like why don't they just stay home and have sex? And then like John would just show up late to work and be like, sorry dudes. Yes. The, and the they and they discount everything and it's like, well, yes, but John is from Jupiter, so they don't operate <laughs> well, the same on that home planet. That's exactly right. I mean, because John's a god from Jupiter. Yes. And and Yoko played into this. They're like, you, know, she, you don't understand, lady. You're applying some sort of human logic to this. Exactly. You don't that's get what, it, okay? You don't get Lennon. And that's what I mean about them going to the studio together, is there's always this assumption that they have this, you know, this Jupiter-like god love where... <laughs> 
you know, they can't be apart because we do, do, cannot understand the level of love they have. <laughs> right. right? Yes. You don't understand this couple who never touches or kisses each other, <laughs> how horny they are for each other and how they make <laughs> tapes like that weird sex tape that they made asking each other about their sex likes and stuff. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like, two, like two years after they've been together. <laughs> yes. And John says he's like never been deeply turned on by a beautiful woman or something. Whatever by an attractive woman. Yeah. Poor Yoko doesn't even get his tract. <laughs> <laughs> my God, poor Yoko. Oh my God. <laughs> Honestly, there's literally no other reason to do that except to see Paul's reaction. And I think he just wanted to see his reaction. It's like, is he just going to be uncomfortable? Is he going to be mad? Is he going to be annoyed with me? It's interesting that they do this right. He does this right when they get back. <laughs> Maybe this is his distraction from his lack of songs. <laughs> I do have a sex date. <laughs> the dog ate my homework, but I have a sex date. So I think we need to address the sort of love triangle that John has created here with, with him and Paul and Yoko because every single book positions it as if John has chosen Yoko over Paul and kicked Paul to the curb and Paul is moping about it and desperately trying to cling to John because he's so you know sad that John's going to go away because it's the best thing that ever happened to him. Right. He's a slouch without John, right? Right. Well, like I mean, this, every is, single... this is one of my most hated tropes is that Yoko stole Paul's man. Yes. Yes, me too. Can't fucking stand that shit. But, but, we, but we are acknowledging that, that this is a real trope that exists that people say all the time. Oh, yeah. They romanticize, I mean, they romanticize it even. Like this is a this is the mainstream opinion. Oh yeah, like, this is what like Rolling Stone and all the Jean Jackets. Like this is their favorite story. Oh, this is their favorite because this is where John leaves Paul for Yoko, and Paul is heartbroken because he's losing his man. Right, and I, again, I'm not sure what Jean Jackets get because Jean Jackets don't worship Yoko, so I don't understand what they get out of this except the fact that John is dumping Paul, yep. and that sort of helps elevate John, right? Yes, yes, that elevates Because him. it means John is too good for Paul. That's, the that's I think, with the story that they love so much. Oh, yeah. Because they don't think that, Paul, that Yoko is such a superior genius artist. Well, you know, they, they may concede that they can't see it, but John does, and she seems to have inspired John, so they'll go along with that. This both elevates John, you know, he left Paul, but it also excuses John's lack of competitiveness and lack of performance, mm -hmm. because, you know, he wasn't interested anyway, which they also roll into the idea of abdication of leadership. I mean, it's a handy explanation, but... There is no evidence that John is ever disinterested in Paul at any point in his life, let alone in 1969. We're supposed to believe that Paul is not able to excite John creatively during the most prolific, creatively intense period of Paul's life, when he is writing and creating the songs that make up 
the White Album, Abbey Road, Hey Jude, Let It Be, you know. Yeah. But yeah, okay, you know, he was clearly just too creatively conservative. I mean... He's creatively okay. conservative. Meaning, right. Meaning he's not taking his dick out. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what it boils down to, right? Right. Okay. Here's the thing. We hear Neil encouraging Paul to stand up to John. We hear... Michael Lindsay Hogg doing the same thing. Everybody sort of agrees that George Harrison is also resentful of Paul right now for Paul not using his power and authority to get rid of Yoko. Like, everybody is kind of getting frustrated with Paul for not ending this situation. So we have an interesting narrative that runs counter to the mainstream one. We have everyone around complaining about John and Yoko while Paul is the only one who really defends them. So everybody's looking to Paul and Paul's not moving. Paul's not exerting power and I think the usual rationale for him not exerting power is that he doesn't think he has any and he's kind of being weak. Yeah and he's afraid he's gonna spook John. So he has to be very careful exactly. So the question is do we believe that? Do we, if, if everybody thinks Paul has power, and we don't think that Paul is weak, we've got enough support around. Michael Lindsay Hogg is saying that Paul is powerful at this point. We've got other people saying that Paul is powerful. So if we don't think that it's as simple as Paul is weak, why is Paul not fighting back? Why, why is Paul not doing what he probably knows John wants him to do, which is fight for their partnership? So let's look at what Paul actually says at this time. He says it's it's silly of me or anyone to tell John not to bring his girlfriend with him places, right? So you, it, I just think it's a silly of me or anyone to try and say to him, no, you can't. It's like, because, okay, you know, they, they, they're going overboard about it. But John always does, you know, and Yoko probably always does. So that's their scene. You can't go saying... You know, don't go overboard about this thing. You know, be sensible about it and don't bring it to meetings. You know, it's his decision. That's none of our business to interfere in that. Even when it comes into our business, still can't really say much. Except, look, I don't like it, John. Which is interesting because I think that counters the idea that Paul's just jealous. You know, he's, he's supporting John and Yoko. He doesn't seem to be pushing against Yoko in this at uh, this time at all. There's like three or four different times when he supports them as a couple behind their backs. Yeah, when they're not even there, so the, he's not doing that to impress John. And he says it to he says it to Neil, like when Neil's bitching about them, and both Neil and Linda are like, Paul, come on. Yeah. And like with Yoko, yeah. I mean, they're, they're really, they mean it. <laughs> I don't dig that. Him and Yoko, you know, they they. <laughs> Go away! Control. They, you know, they do mean. Yeah. Everybody cough. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. But you know, I... but one of the things that we've talked about is the fact that John has set up a very interesting situation, which I think that they managed to twist. We talked about this in our last episode, which they managed to twist into being Paul's jealousy. But there's something very interesting about what John himself is doing maybe even subconsciously he may be saying i need everything right now in one person because the thing is that 
in order for Paul to step up for John and to fight Yoko, he has to fight John's girlfriend. Right. And how does Paul do that? Like, I, I think that's why Paul is saying, I can't fight this fight because I can't be his girlfriend. Exactly. In 1985, he says that very, like, bluntly. What did he say? He said, like, we had a very intense yeah. relationship. And and it was like, he once he saw started seeing Yoko, he couldn't still be seeing me. Yeah. Which is so interesting, and people always read into it, a more traditional reading that, you know, Paul was sad that he lost out. But I think that Paul is saying he recognized the depth of their love and their, their, there wasn't really, when they were that intense, there wasn't really room, room for somebody else. Because I think that that's, something happened in 68 for John to bring Yoko in. And, you know, we hypothesized that maybe John could have been saying, like, you're going to lose me if you don't fight. Well, right. Well, realistically, that we think this has been going on for six months now. By the way, when we call this a love triangle, we're referring to the contrived situation that, that John has created here with Yoko and Paul the triangulation that we described in the previous episode. Right, and it's always set up that it's Yoko and Paul are vying for John in this situation, that the battle is between the two of them over John, or about John. Yes, but he's it, the prize. He's the prize that they're fighting over. But in reality, you know, one thing that isn't taken into consideration is that Paul has his own romantic interest you know she's always because linda was willing to not insert herself into this situation when she was happy to be his you know his his romantic partner but paul has somebody that he's in love with she's pregnant at this time they're committed they stay together for life so this is a very important relationship for him (laughs) right he calls her the love of his life well and the and the reason why for example, Linda is not included in the triangle is because Paul is not weaponizing her against John and he's not waving Linda in John's face. Right, and that's really important that this is the, this is John who's maneuvered this situation. So it's always, you know, it's, it's always looked at Paul like, you know, as the one that is fighting and it's not this is this is John's doing instead of trying to like define the fight because of the situation that Paul has been put in what we're trying to look at is why is John engineering this situation what does he get out of it you know there's this trope that Paul is sad and depressed and you know just trying to keep them together you know because he loves the band and he's writing these sad songs because he he has no control he has no agency and yet when we look at every at the tapes everybody is saying Paul step up go and talk to John everybody and we see John seems a little bit frustrated because he's writing some songs that seem to be suggesting a partner who's immovable and who could change the situation if they would do something so we can just hypothesize that maybe John thinks that Paul hasn't agency and power in this situation too. So we come to see Let It Be and everything that unfolds 
in this month during this filming and the recording of all these songs and the writing of these songs and performing of these songs together we come to see it all as kind of a it's kind of their come to jesus moment where either paul acts and changes the situation or or steps aside steps aside yeah It's easier to find bootlegs of Let It Be than it is to actually find the original Michael Lindsay Hogg movie. And you can find many of them on YouTube. Um, there's also a blog on Tumblr called A Moral 2, where you can listen to these Get Back session tapes. The blogger has audio and transcripts, and they're organized by date and it's amazing yeah and beyond that it's just a wonderful archive of beatles material interviews and yeah. everything you could want so if we want to really investigate this period it's important to review the raw material rather than just the officially sanctioned final product which by necessity has been subjected to all the constraints that come with making a film about the beatles which is not a dig at Michael Lindsay Hogg because I know his hands were tied in terms of what he could and couldn't show us. But when we put aside the sanitized version and just look at the raw material for ourselves, we find, not surprisingly, that there's actually much more going on than we were initially led to believe. The traditional narrative is always that John's disinterested at this period, whereas when we look at it, we see that... John is doing a ton of reaching out in his own way. But I was just shocked at how there seemed to be an underlying dynamic, a conversation going on between Paul and John, specifically emanating, in my reading, from John to Paul. Yes, I saw it the same way too. Yeah, absolutely. It, that, it's, that's kind of a mind blower when you think about it. I mean, that runs so contrary to the narrative. Yeah. Well, I remember I remember we chatted after uh, we were looking at the, the footage, and I was just like, holy shit, I did not see that there before. There was like a whole other level that exists there. I mean, I think that, you know, Selfie, the original Selfie book that came out, kind of was the first step in undermining the story that everybody had been led to believe. You know, he sort of challenged this yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and reframed it, which was great. However, when I revisited the tape for all the discussion about the fact that John was, you know, ambivalent and, you know, disinterested, I think that there are a lot of examples of the opposite. You know, the thing is, is that because they talk to each other in code, which we know, like John literally told us that. Right. He told Hunter that in 67. Yes. Right. He spelled, he spelled that out for us in case we didn't know. He's like, yeah. you don't, oh, we're not going to give you the code, but we speak in code. All right. He said, when there are strangers around, yes. which is, this is the exact scenario that we're looking at right here. Exactly. They're, they're in a situation surrounded by strangers, surrounded by like camera crew and stuff. And they speak to each other in code and they, they speak to each other in song lyrics. He talks to Paul about some dreams he's had. He, you know, makes the point that he's happy being back in the studio, that it's like home for him. You know, he makes connections about the fact that 
they sound like lovers when they are uh, when we look at the so- songs between them. So all sort of interpersonal ways that he's reaching out to Paul. Like, for example, we see Paul give John a lot of attention in terms of music, but we don't see a lot of Paul trying to engage with John on a personal level so much. And I guess there are a couple reasons um, Paul might just be trying to be discreet because there are cameras around, although it doesn't always come off like that. Um, but sometimes it might be that. Another option is that Paul's simply not perceptive enough to pick up on what John is saying. Um, but again, that's not really the situation that we can detect because a lot of times Paul is sort of actively batting things away or deflecting. Right. It's, it, it looks like he recognizes what's being said and is choosing not to engage. You know, I think sometimes it's framed as if Paul is just so starved for John's attention. And, I mean, that's definitely not the impression I get that Paul wants. No. You know, I think Paul definitely wants John to focus on the work. The music. And the yes. music, yes. Like, yes, and, and that's when Paul does engage. You know, I think that he is trying to take them back to the root of their connection, which is music, you know, and they're even going back to the music of their youth. So Paul's trying to reconnect them in the way that he knows how. This is not to say that Paul doesn't have human emotions and that he isn't, you know, like that he's not processing them because I think his songs definitely reflect that he is whatever his feelings are that he's, that he's processing right now and the depth of his love for John and for this band and which we know he has. I mean, I think we all believe he has whatever it is. It's, it's for some reason, it's not causing him to try to make personal connections or intimate connections with John. And that's interesting. Like, that's, you know, what does that mean? Well, again, it's kind of like when you start to explore Paul's behavior again, you know, when I was trying to think through why he wasn't responding and why he was changing the subjects. I mean, we don't know why, but it was just like, this is not somebody who's afraid of losing his relationship with John at this point. He's really not. You know, I just don't, when you look at his responses. He's not behaving that way. He's not behaving that way. He's behaving like he's hanging with somebody he's known forever and who's being kind of annoying and pushing him and he just does not want to engage at this point. Yes. Like, okay, that, that, this is like home. But I can't wait to work here, you know. Yeah. Either, anyway, you know, I just can't wait to just do it. Have it, you know. Yeah. But, uh, mm, but I'm just talking about this thing. That's like, just, thing that's just John, you know, trying to communicate to Paul that he's committed, that he likes being here. He's still in it. Yeah. You know? Yes. To me, that that's saying, hey, maybe I seemed out of it, but this is like my home and I, I want to be here. And Paul, frustratingly, is just like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's like we got much better takes after we moved from Twickenham to here. Oh, yeah, but I mean, here our life is like home. Yeah, sure, but our takes are getting not as good. You know, like, he's yeah. not acting the way that we would assume he would. He's just like, yeah, I, I know John, but whatever, like, 
we were getting better songs from the other place, you know, like you yeah. realize the fact that Paula's pretty focused. In one of the recording sessions, Paul arrives with Linda and Heather and John, who is already there, approaches him and, and says, like, with lots of enthusiasm, did you dream about me last night? He thought that Paul was actually in his dream. Like, they almost had a telepathy thing. Yes. He ambushes Paul with this dream as soon as he walks through the door. Not like, no, hey, I dreamed about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like John actually thinks Paul was in his dream. You know, we talk about this telepathy thing that John really believes in. He believes that Paul is messing with his mind in the late 70s. And to me, this is the best example of it, where he thinks that they have such a special connection that... For them to have, for him to have such a, a a realistic dream means that Paul was also having this dream, as in they were connect mind connecting in the middle of the night. You know, yeah. Don't you think it's pretty incredible? Like John's reaction to it is incredible. The fact that he just thinks that Paul was with him because he says, "I was touching you." And yeah. you know, Paul he does humor John, and he's like, mm, "I don't think so." Yeah, but. Um, he changes the subject pretty quickly. Well, I think. Well, I think John immediately says nothing sexy. Right. So John John is self aware enough at some point to realize I said that out loud and we're with people and it might have sounded yeah loud. really loud by the way John <laughs> <laughs> really loud. You know you would you would be led to believe that the guy, these guys are barely talking, and John wants to be talking about their joint dr- dreams that he thinks they're having. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, it's such a different scenario than we've been led to believe well it's it's like uh, you know so i had this dream i was touching you and so (laughs) therefore you must have been dreaming the same thing at the same time and that's how we i was able to touch you because we both were having this metaphysical experience where we were thinking the same thing about each other that's what i mean is that like it's rather extraordinary, a rather yeah. extraordinary example of how much and deeply John believes in this idea of right. their interconnectedness, you know? Well, well, and it, it, it almost kind of suggests that, like, something like this has happened before, like either in meditation or in LSD or some kind of thing like that. Well, you know, maybe in their LSD experiences, you know, that remember Paul says that you know, they go into each other's minds kind of thing and they see each other through each other's eyes and, you know, they sort of experience this oneness. So, you know, maybe that was one proof point for them. But, you know, John says this was a very strong dream. He seems to think that Yoko also experienced it because he said we both dreamt it. It was different, but we were both dreaming of you. Well, he seemed to be happy about that dream. Like, that's the thing is the way John talks about it, it's like, there's a connection there. You know, he's excited about something. You know, I don't know if it's just because it seems so realistic, but there, to me, there's like something there that he's so excited about. There's some kind of a connection there that's so meaningful. 
we know from other stories that they've told they've had the, they've had the same dream before and it was important to them like they they talked about it you know they had one when they were teenagers where they both had the, the same dream and they linked it together and it was about like gold coins or something you know yes, they both finding the, same, the gold yeah so they both yeah. after they met they had a dream of finding gold i know um, it's amazing and then they go on to become you know the kings of the universe, which is so cute. It's, you want to kind of throw up. But, um, <laughs> right. So, so, jo- we've, so we've got John, who's clearly still believing in their telepathy. And Paul, who doesn't want to talk about it in public, at least. Right. Although he Paul- wasn't, he wasn't like, let's talk about this later. He was just like, oh, okay, is everything cool? All right. Yeah. Like, he did not want to talk about it. (laughs) But, okay, so on the issue of telepathy, you know, this is something, obviously, that they think they have between them is this telepathy. This is not just one-sided. I think it was probably driven by John's belief in it. But, you know, they clearly have this deep connection. But Paul makes the point later that it's not working, that they're not evolved enough that John, you know, John hasn't been talking in a lot of the meetings, and I think it's frustrating, Paul. And he's he's saying, like, look, it's it, we just can't do this. We're not at that level, even though he wants us to be. And I know he's probably trying to communicate in that way. It's not working. And then the interesting thing is, is that then he turns around and kind of undermines his point by saying that, but I know what he's thinking, and I know what he's why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. Well, that's 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 the trouble, you see, because that's it. It's like with your, with our heightened awareness, the answer is not to say anything, you know. But it isn't, because I mean we screw each other up totally when we don't do that, because we're not ready for your heightened vows of silence. We're really not ready. We don't know what the fuck each other's talking about. Uh, you know, we all just sort of get. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, but see, that's it. That's why John doesn't say anything, because <laughs> he, you know, he just. That's, that was, there was something the other day, and I just said, so what do you think? And he just stood didn't say anything. You know. And I, I know exactly why, you know. I mean, I wouldn't if... So, like, in some ways, John's right in that he... I think John assumes that they can read each other and understand each other, and yeah. Paul's proving that. But I'm wondering if Yoko is kind of mixing up their signals a little bit. She's frying the connection a little bit because Paul isn't quite sure anymore what John's thinking. And then it may be acting in a way that he wouldn't have. And, you know, that yeah. then John's reacting to Paul's action. So it may be spinning things out of control. But I just wonder if Paul is, even though he probably knows what John is thinking, is like, yeah. it's too confusing now. There's too, I don't know. I don't want to make assumptions. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what he's getting at, too, is that not necessarily, like, telepathy is bullshit. Yeah. I I can't read your mind. It's more like, I don't know what you're thinking anymore, and this is not a reliable form of communication for us. Uh, You know, it's kind of funny, like, the idea that they would still be able to know each other's thoughts the way that they apparently did in like 67, you know, like late 67 or whatever. When John talks about this to uh, Hunter Davies. Yeah, exactly. Like whatever that time period was late 67 or early 68 or whatever. 
John's not talking much in these in this period, and and like we talked about, like John's watching Paul closely, but he Paul is specifically saying here that he knows John is trying to communicate telepathically. You know, again, this the whole point is to identify and to pull this as very important information that John actually is doing a lot of communicating with Paul. He's just not doing it in the traditional way. Right. In the ways that are most obvious and most surface level. Right. He's talking to him in code. He's talking to him in a code and the biggest code, which is silence, which people just take as John being not interested or disconnected. And then we hear from Paul saying, no, John thinks we're so connected that we don't even need (laughs) to speak and that we're dreaming of each other. This is not about disinterest. It's the fucking opposite where he thinks we're still so connected that we yeah. don't need to speak. And Paul is saying, actually, there is a breakdown. I don't know at this. I can't. I'm not sure. And and he seems like he's struggling with it, you know? Like, Paul is like, John, just talk to me. I think that John ties so much meaning to the telepathy. Like, we are so different and special that we have this incredible ability to read each other like other people can't. And if he stops doing that and they can't read each other, what's that say to John? An endeavor. So here, John's quoting from two early Lennon-McCartney songs, and specifically one of their most famous collaborations, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And Paul changes the subject really quickly, or does not engage anyways. Yeah, he talks over. Very unswinging. Unhip. And when I touch you, I feel happy inside. I can't hide, I can't hide. Ask me why. What I'll you say need I is you. a schedule. A garden schedule. Point A to Z. Mm. Travel from A to Z and having reached the point. So there could be some coded message or meaning behind what John is saying. Yeah, I think he he's got to the point where he thinks maybe this is the only way he's going to hear me. And this is something that he continues to do throughout his life. You know, we in the 70s, we see that John liberally peppers Paul's song titles, lyrics, and special buzzwords like wings into his songs. There's another interaction between them. You know, they're going through their list of songs and Paul seems to stumble intuitively across the fact that, hmm, there's a lot of similar themes going on here. (laughs) And John seems much more aware of these themes. Again, you know, John probably is paying more attention to the interpersonal, whereas Paul has maybe been so focused on the music, the production, getting them done, that he seems to be only stumbling across the underlying themes at this point. And so they have this conversation. It's like, uh, after Get Back, we're on our way home. Yeah. So there's a story, and there's another one, Don't Let Me Down. Oh, darling, I'll never let you down. Yeah, it's like never you were we had to camp it up for those two. Yeah. One where John is just bluntly like, yes, Paul. We sound like lovers, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah newsflash, Paul. <laughs> You're the only one who didn't get the memo. <laughs> it's hilarious because John, John, there's no, there's no like, aha from John. He's just like, 
Yeah. We no know, shit. We no shit. Yeah. No shit, Sherlock. And then he has to make a joke about it, right? Okay, well, I'll wear a dress or whatever he says. Yeah. We just have to camp it up for those two. Yeah. Well, I'll be wearing my skirt for the show. So, like, John jumps on it a little too quick. Like, right. just takes his dick out immediately. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a little premature. And then so when Paul doesn't really respond enthusiastically, John pulls back a bit. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, once the, the cat is out of the bag on this topic, he seems to want to hit home on this point, you know, because he brings it up again. He's like a bit of a yes. dog with a bone on this subject after that. But then we're on our way home. It's like uh, we're a couple of queens. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, that's we're a couple of queens. That's just too bad. Right. So I assume at some point Paul got the drift. Like, <laughs> Right, <laughs> but he got the message somehow. He got the message because, yeah, John keeps bringing it up. You know, I think that probably Paul was just commenting on the artistic theme that seemed to be emerging and not really give, you know, not really commenting on like a personal insight between what was happening between them interpersonally. But of course this is where John immediately <laughs> and repeatedly takes it. And I do, th- yeah. I do think in this period, John is watching, you see John just looking at Paul for long periods of time. And to me, I always read it as he's looking for, some kind of an answer from Paul that he's not getting. There's something that he wants that, you know, some kind of a statement or some kind of a, you know, he's watching and waiting too. For all that we say that Paul is monitoring John, John is very closely monitoring Paul too. Yeah. Well, and I mean, John always watches Paul. I mean, historically, he does. I, I, I do think that actually John is the closer watcher and probably the the yeah the um, more perceptive about the underlying dyna- dynamics between them, which you know yes. is probably a huge problem. And didn't he comment on that too? Actually, yeah, I, I recall reading, and I'm totally paraphrasing here. But that John was frustrated in watching himself in Let It Be because he felt like he was too focused on Paul and too reactive to his moods. Which I thought was funny because the story is supposed to be that John was only focused on Yoko. And yet yet from John's perspective and his impression is that he was just focused on Paul. Yeah, well we think that too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah when you when you get under the surface level read it is pretty interesting like i said i mean i found it fascinating john's stillness in watching and it's like the brightness of his eyes sometimes when he's watching paul like as in he's waiting for the answer and i don't think that answer ever came so Paul doesn't appear to engage in these types of discussions, I mean, on tape anyway, with John. Um, however, Paul will play with John while they're making music. Right. You know, it, in fact, we see that things can get extremely flirtatious in that context. And, you know, there's lots of examples, but the best example is probably Dig It, which they use a very G-rated snippet of and Let It Be. <laughs> But they cut out the dirty parts because <laughs> it got really dirty. <laughs> it got really dirty. You're gonna get it, all right. You're gonna 
he's what just he he's he just freestyling. John is gleeful. John looks like it's his birthday. He does. He's and super happy. Yeah, that one. I I wonder if that's more like what they were before when they were relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, when things were like normal or whatever. Yeah. And then there's John's contribution to I've got a feeling. I always find it so funny that when John and Yoko are singing that middle part, it's um, everybody had a soft dream. Like with for them it's a soft dream, and then when John starts singing with Paul, it's a wet dream. <laughs> I know. It could just be fun, you know, that this is their dynamic, you know, but it certainly doesn't reflect somebody who's disinterested, you know. Well, or, yeah, I think that's the point. I mean, I think the sexual energy goes up a notch whenever they get together, and that's just a natural result of their chemistry. It's not, like, intentional or, or contrived in any way. It just It's just natural, and it results in great music. It's just like they can't help. This is their dynamic that this is when they get together and they start playing that they have fun. This is probably what, you know, their chemistry has been like the whole time because they are turned on creatively and it's fun. You get lots of energy when things, you know, you're creating something. As somebody who is not a musician, I don't understand it. And this to me was pretty instructive. Rufus Wainwright said in an interview recently, um, he was talking about his bandmate, Mark, and he said, We kind of fell in love with each other. There's a real attraction between Mark and I, which is a little harder for me being gay. I have to battle with it. Whether it's the Beatles, or the Stones, or the Eurythmics, there's an unrequited sexual romantic energy in the studio, and it becomes volatile if not dealt with. To have someone to sing to and dream about in that amorphous state is what it's all about in the end. People fall in love with people. Yes, there are gay people, straight people, and bisexuals, but crushes are universal. So that was really instructive to me because it suggested that when you get into this mind state of really creating with somebody and being so close and connected to them and singing with them, that there it almost creates an attraction and a romantic bond. And Rufus says, it's harder for me because, you know, it would be natural for him to take it further and presumably his partner wouldn't. But nevertheless, he's making the point that the feeling or attraction is mutual. So if we apply this to John and Paul's situation, like Rufus does, um, it suggests that even if the feelings between them are mutual what they actually want to do with those feelings might be at odds. Yes. Additionally, you know, we've got John's telepathy with Paul, which may complicate things further because John might think that he knows what Paul is feeling. Well, and we know that John believes everyone is bisexual. Yoko revealed that in 2015, she told the Daily Beast, she said that they talked about it and that um john thinks that everybody is bisexual 
and that people are just repressing their bisexuality because of society, and so they hide their homosexual tendencies, I guess. So basically, John thinks that heterosexuality is a social construct and that so-called heterosexuals are really just repressed bisexuals. I know plenty of self-identifying heterosexuals who would disagree with that, but there you go. Um, right. But this is what this is what John thought. This is what John thought. So yeah. in John's mind, if everyone is bisexual, then obviously that would include Paul since he's a human being. Right? He's a person, right? right? So, mm-hmm. which means again that if Paul doesn't want to get sexy, <laughs> that means that either he must not love me enough or he's just too square and conservative, you know, because right. he's there's no such thing as heterosexuality. Like, that's not, a, that is not a valid excuse in John's mind, <laughs> right? It's just. That's right. Just, I mean, just, and that's cowardice. interesting. That, that That's basically what, you know, we were just discussing was that Rufus is like, I'm gay. My friend is not. I respect his boundaries. But right. like John is like, boundaries are for <laughs> and losers and conservative <laughs> tools of the system of the patriarchy. Exactly. Exactly. But maybe for Paul, this isn't a means to an end. This is the actual bond for Paul. Right. Like music and creation. That is their state of bliss. That's their nirvana. Right. And that's enough for him. Yeah. That's it for him. Like that is, you know, that's the pleasure center. I honestly think like that could be a real problem because it's just from John's point of view, if Paul isn't willing to push outside his comfort zone to make this work between them then it's it's either because he doesn't love john enough to try or because he's just a coward if you buy into that idea then you have to co-sign all of john's other ideas like for example that heterosexuality is not a real thing um you have to also believe that like paul's boundaries are unimportant and shouldn't be respected let's be clear you know like that's right. not good. It's not cool to argue that. However, I can also understand why John would be very hurt by that. If that's the scenario, I mean, obviously we don't know. We're, this is just our best guess based on what we do know. Yeah, and I mean, they, both of those themes, both of those scenarios that you floated, that Paul doesn't love me enough, and the fact that Paul is too square and conservative are alternating themes that John uses when it comes to Paul. Right. And the conservative one makes no sense. No, it doesn't. That's the, that's the thing that always confuses me. I mean, this whole conservative uh, name that he gives to or label that he gives to Paul is always a bit of a red flag for me. Like, yes, why? You know, what is he talking about? Yes. And nobody bothers to try to get underneath it. John calling Paul conservative is based on his own issues not on Paul actually being conservative. John's like, I, I, we've been dating for fucking 10 years, Paul, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How long? I'm driving, I, I'm going fucking insane right now. Like, yeah, I mean, that could that could be it. Like this thing between us, it has to go somewhere because yeah. I, I'm going crazy. Mm-hmm. 
Here's John on the subject of music as a means of communication. I mean, sometimes you don't realize what you've written till after you've recorded it, or even a year later, you know. I hear old records of ours and see things on different levels suddenly, or I'll sing a, a song to Paul and he'll see it on a, a level that I haven't seen at all, you know, and that'll be the, the subtlest level he could sit, see it on. And even though I've written it, and somewhere in my soul knows whatever makes you write it like that, is aware of what, what it said, you're not always aware at the time of doing it. Whether he's he was expressing himself because whether we plan it to express our inner lost feelings or sort of surreal it like Dylan or Paul, you could say his lyrics are very sort of non-specific. It if one knows the person, one knows what is coming down. I think everything that comes out of the songs, even Paul's songs now, which are apparently about nothing, the same way as calligraphy show, and your handwriting shows everything about yourself, but it was always apparent what, if you look below the surface, what is being said. So talking about John and Paul communicating with each other through song, this is a very real phenomenon. John has talked about it many times. He talked about it in 1967 to Hunter Davies. He's talked about it in 1969, 1973, 1976, 1980. I mean, throughout his life. He specifically talked about communicating with Paul through music. How the two of them would, would speak to each other and communicate with each other. And then he also, as probably everybody knows, has talked extensively about how he writes about himself. I mean, he said it over and over again, that he writes from his own experience. He writes about the, the real feelings that he has, his autobiography, you know, so it should be fairly straightforward task to to look at his songs to assume that he's writing about his real life and his real feelings and to assume that he is sometimes communicating with paul i mean we have tons of evidence that that's the case right yes yes I he mean, says it's the best way for them to communicate yeah. <laughs> unambiguously yes this is something that drives me nuts. People liberally assign Paul's songs to being about John, yet they don't do the converse, assigning John's songs to being about Paul, unless they're angry or critical. <laughs> Even though it's John that continually makes the point that he and Paul communicate through music, apparently authors and the fandom only think that it's Paul who has something to say. Yeah, unless it's How Do You Sleep. Right. But, but, we, but like maybe he wrote more than one song to his songwriting partner over the years 
Right. I mean, there's such an inconsistency in how they're treated. Paul's feelings are romanticized. And as we discussed in the last episode, I think that people are just more comfortable talking about Paul's love for John than John's love for Paul. Like, why is John assumed to be so vapid as to never write Paul a song with, like, any depth of feeling besides anger? Like, why is he so one-dimensional in people's eyes? Right? He only has anger or he has love for Yoko. Like, yes. those are his two feelings. I mean, but this inconsistency in how they're treated even applies to something like when they sing together. That it's assumed that if they're singing together on a yes. Paul song that it's about them. Whereas if Paul's singing with John on a John song. <laughs> John is secretly thinking about Julia. Right. The same <laughs> logic is not applied. <laughs> yes. yes. The idea that John has nothing to say on the subject of Paul is like ludicrous, right? <laughs> like, right. I think he has a lot to say, actually. <laughs> Which he continues. It's funny because John talks about Paul way more than Paul talks about John throughout the 70s. Like Paul's got, uh, John's got stuff to say. And, yes. you know, he's the one that says that he thinks they've got telepathy and they talk through music. So let's look at their music. I mean, it's like nobody thinks that John is writing heartbroken breakup songs on Let It Be. That's not what he's writing about. So my question is, what is he writing about? We need to look at that, right? Yeah, let, the, let, the themes. Yeah, what? I mean, instead of pulling the songs apart for lyrics, let's just look at the underlying themes because there are some consistencies. So the the overriding feeling that I get from all of John's Let It Be songs is frustration. I think that's how I would characterize most of them. Right. Yes. If we look at Dig a Pony, there's like, he's not getting something. All I want is you but everything has got to be the way you want it to. Like there is something that is, there's yes. an issue. And the lyrics describe a multi-talented, but rigid partner, right? Yes. Who could remedy the current situation with a bit of flexibility, right? Right. If everything didn't need to be exactly the way that partner wants it. And I mean, I say multi-talented because it's a laundry list of things he can do or she can do mm -hmm. yeah penetrate <laughs> any place you go <laughs> imitate anyone you see um, radiate everything you are what something about a boat you row god that boat again Jeez. I know John and it, we should uh, we should talk do about John and his boats on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> wow a syndicate any boat you row i think it is yeah yeah which is quite a phrase yes it is actually actually now that we think about it you know just food for thought i i it's an i mean whoever it's about there's some yeah. frustration that's constant yes yeah there is a point to the song though and i yeah. should point out that like paul loves that song too does he mm -hmm. how do you know that oh he says i love that song doesn't he, he? does yeah <laughs> he says oh that's cute a little bit more paint you know? it's all right yeah no that's good that one okay ticket i love that one thank you i really do i enjoy it too sometimes and then, so there's I Want You, 
Later, on Abbey Road, John writes a song about Yoko called She's So Heavy, and he combines it with this one to make a hybrid, I Want You, She's So Heavy. Uh, But for now, in the Get Back sessions, I Want You is its own song and its own independent sentiment. It's a pretty simple song based around this one riff and this one line, I want you so bad it's driving me mad. That's the whole thing. So it's like just pretty unambiguous. It's a song of like sexual frustration, unresolved longing, or desire. Horniness, if you will. Horniness, yes. It's interesting because it is um, similar in theme to I'm So Tired, John's song from a year prior, where he talks about, um, you know, my mind is set on you, I'm going insane, this, this idea of madness or insanity and obsession with something is a, is a similar theme that's being played out. This, this time it's a little bit more on the sexual side, you know, then I, I, I'm so tired, but it is again this idea of obsession and madness that is sort of being mirrored here. And like a, a sort of a begging, there's like a begging quality to it, right? Yes. Similar, it's like in I'm So Tired where he kind of begs at the end, like, you know, it, um, the crescendo or whatever is like. Yeah, I uh, give you everything I've got for a little peace of mind. Like he's looking for somebody yes. else to resolve it, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I'm So Tired has, you know, was was written in India before John got together with Yoko. And so they've been together, and yet this theme of madness and obsession continues, is unresolved. Six months later, the same problem is still there. Like nothing has really been resolved and it's still driving him nuts. Right, and it's really been pared down to one thought at this point. Yeah, we forget about the cigarettes and Sir Walter Raleigh and all that bullshit. This is Let just... me see if I can get this th- through right now. Right, it's a very clear thought single-minded that John is now pared down and just being very straightforward about. So why does John want Paul to sing this song? I mean, Paul sings it on a take. I mean, he obviously he doesn't sing it, you know, all the way through. Eventually John takes it back. But we have the, the Let It Be tape, the beginning version, the sort of tight, funky version, and then where John is singing, but Paul is singing with him, sort of like a little, you know, call and response or whatever. And then eventually, like apparently John asked Paul to sing, like he just wanted to hear him sing it. 
What's, what's up it, with that? It, it is interesting because it's highly unusual. I mean, these two are very proprietary about their songs and singing their own songs, you know? This is not something, this is something deeply out of the norm. And we see John wants to sing Oh Darling as well, which, you know, so there's something going on here. You know, I think yes. to, to want somebody else to sing your song or to want to sing somebody else's song is kind of to inhabit their clothes or their, you know, it's, it's like yes, these are yeah, very right. deeply personal when you take over somebody's thoughts. So it's interesting. It's interesting that either John maybe was just shy, which he's traditionally not, but maybe, maybe he just <laughs> felt like he couldn't, or maybe there, you know, maybe he wanted Paul to say this for some reason. I, I don't know. We don't know. I, I would considering that this is that this is unusual I would I would also assume that the that the song choice is important too it's, it's not like it's not like like Paul had a habit of like doing takes of all of John's songs, <laughs> right especially not in 1969 I mean you know right well I, I think it is significant there's something about this song that either that made John want Paul to sing it Oh, don't let me down. <laughs> yes. Whew, in all of its various uh, incarnations. So it, it gets a real makeover. Yes. By Lennon and McCartney. Mm -hmm. And Paul's really in. invested in it, too. Yeah. And I feel like he... Because when you listen to the, the sort of demo or whatever that John brings in, it's so much different than the rooftop but don't let me down in its final version it describes a new relationship right yep. with a partner who loves john like no one has before yep it's comparative in some ways yes mm -hmm. right and then at some point he hypothesizes like he 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 sticks a question out there and he says if somebody loved me like she do me and leaves it and dangling lets it, exactly he lets it dangle yeah which is really weird. <laughs> I don't know why nobody ever pays attention to that. I mean, what's the rest of the sentence, John? If they did, then what? It's like, it's almost like he can't say it. Yeah. I don't know if it's because he can't bring himself to say it. So John is... is He's urging whoever this other person is. Through, by somebody. saying if. If somebody loved me like she do me, then if you are going to step up and do something, if you are going to speak now, then this is what you have to compete with. That's kind of how I take it, right? You know, and, and uh, yes, I agree. And, and I think it's interesting because John's very careful about his lyrics. And so for him mm -hmm. just to put the word if in there, there's no then. There's no he. It's just it's an incomplete sentence. And I don't think John does that kind of thing by accident. Right? No, no, of course not. No. And plus, they've they've honed these lyrics over time. I mean, he's he's had a lot of other lyrics 
Well, that's interesting, actually. It's like a really glaring line that nobody decided to fix. Well, uh, well, apparently it doesn't bother anybody. It's not a problem in the song. To me, it just sounds like he's talking to two people. He's talk he's talking to somebody, and he's like, "This is my girlfriend, and she loves me in a way that nobody has before. And I know what it feels like now to have that kind of attention and that kind of devotion. And if you want to do something about it." This is the bar you need to reach. Right. Uh, who do they think he's talking to? Um, well, if I'm a jean jacket, um, John doesn't think about anything except Yoko and world peace. So it could be, I guess, MLK or... <laughs> I've not seen a single person... Call out the if. Call out the if and I guess. I guess nobody... That is a very weird thing to say too about this woman is you know who who's who loves him like no one ever has or whatever i told you i'd be pissed off if that song was written about me i'd be like what the fuck what do you mean if i guess yes what are you talking about like that's the world's least romantic song i guess nobody (laughs) i guess this is as good as it gets (laughs) i guess Although it's a weird one where he says, when he talks about like, she's so great about this. And then it's like, who's he speaking to with the don't let me down? Is it, is he all of a sudden turning to this woman and saying, I've just said all this about you. Don't let me down. You know, it's just, it's an interesting change. Yeah. Well, again, I take it as being to the other person, to the if, to the other person that he's imploring to step up. Yes. Well, that would make more sense if he's saying, she's done this, don't let me down. Yeah. I mean, why is he saying it now? Because now is the do or die. Now is the time. You know what I mean? It's like he, John Lennon writes a song and then he gets married like two months later or whatever it is. Who is he saying, don't let me down to? Is he worried that Yoko's going to fucking split? I think it's partly for... Paul, don't let me down, support me, you know. And it's also secondarily for Yoko. It's like somebody better better support me. Please don't let me down. Yes, yes. Well the don't let me down part is is that's all it says is don't let me down. So that could be that could apply to both of them at the right. same time. And I think it does. I really do think it does. Even Yeah. He's really hedging. He's so yes, hedging I agree. in the I agree. song though. He is. And I think that like, when he's saying the don't let me down, he could be saying, don't let me down, Yoko, I'm counting on you. But she seems pretty devoted at that point. You know what I mean? Like Yoko's like literally like Velcro, but okay. So, uh, yes. but the other person is, he could be saying to Paul, don't let me down, support me with this woman, which is how it's usually taken. Or it could yeah. be, don't let me down. I'm giving you one last chance to fucking step yes. it up. And I'm counting yeah. on you. I mean, I, I honestly think it's that. But it's shrouded in enough potential other meaning right. Right. for him to weasel right. out of that if he needs to. That's cool. Don't let me down! Don't let me 
So to me, the I guess is profoundly sad because I think it, the I guess is like, well, uh, I think I believed prior to this that somebody loved me and I guess that person doesn't love me. Right. It's, it's like a conclusion that he's coming to. Like the I guess is like based on the information, I guess this is my answer. It's very awkward in a love song. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, kind of tragic. A, and There is a sadness to it. You know, I agree. I, it's a complicated song. Looks like I'm in love with for the first time with Yoko because this is actually, with being in love is a two-way street. So, you know, I'm in, you know, I'm in love for the first time now. But if somebody did love me, <clears throat> yeah. that would be a different story. It's almost like you can still talk me out of it, by the way. Or you can you can do me properly and show me, <laughs> <laughs> show yeah you know I'm open to being done is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to make this into a competition for all those who are slightly competitive, I don't know if we've got any competitive people here, but just, <laughs> if we if anybody's mildly competitive. Okay, let's do the next one then. Does he tape in there? Yeah. Would you dig a pony straight into I've Got a Fever? So, I Dig a Pony is about an inflexible partner who John is giving all kinds of props to about all of that person's various talents, <laughs> but also accusing that person of being inflexible. Don't Let Me Down is about the new love that John is experiencing and the new relationship that he's in and how it's both scary and exciting. Yet he is also hedging and he's signaling to somebody else that if that person wants to do something, there could be a change. And then at the chorus, he implores either the first party or the second party or both. Don't let me down. And then I Want You is just a simple song about about sexual frustration. That's right. it. It's the only lyric is I want you, I want you so bad it's driving me mad. That right. is it. Right, which and, is, we've heard themes of in the past with like I'm so tired. Which I'm so tired isn't overtly sexual, but it has the same theme of an obsession or a preoccupation that of John's that is driving him insane. It's it's For, just an interesting yeah. mindset. The John, you know, we talked about at the beginning of him coming in the beginning of January and being a little bit I don't think he's decided on anything. He's just right. frustrated yes. and in kind of this deeply emotional sort of limbo almost. Yes, uh, that's a good way to put it. He is kind of in, in a limbo. But it's interesting to know that this is what's coming out of him, what he's communicating right now. And it, it's interesting that he, he doesn't seem to be, like you said, there are no breakup songs. There are no, he's not dealing with the end of a relationship. He doesn't, they're not necessarily sad. No, no. And they're not necessarily... Romantic. They're not deeply romantic. They're not deeply happy. romantic. 
or sweet. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I don't, I don't hear any of that. <laughs> there's no like, like two of us, for example, to to move on to pause songs for for a minute. Like two of us is exactly that to me. I mean, two of us is about Paul and Linda driving around, getting lost, you know, taking it easy, right, right. <laughs> falling in love, oh, you know. Yeah. It's sweet. Yeah. It is romantic. He loved the fact that I think she pushed him to give up some control and get a little lost and stop being so rigid. Yeah. You know, sometimes he uses metaphors, but I think he talks about getting lost and not following a route as being a metaphor for just some freedom that the two of them. And, you know, like you said, he's, he's bringing some of those details to life here. Yeah, it's a lovely, like, it's not saccharine sweet. It evokes kind of like a field of flowers. Yes, know? yes. It's not like it's not the desperation of a um, maybe I'm amazed, which is you know much more passionate. Right. This is yeah, much yeah. more the sweetness of the fun. And I do think John is folded into this song a little bit too. Yeah, I do. I agree. Um, specifically the bridge, yes. where he's talking about the memories and stuff like that. But to me, the way that I always see it. Excuse me. <laughs> I got choked up for a second. Um, About the song? Yeah. Is um, that he's letting go of John. You and I have memories Longer than the road that stretches out ahead It's heartbreaking, actually, because he's saying that the road behind them Yes. further than the one ahead. You know, this particular one isn't isn't necessarily angsty. It's no. just kind of like... No, this is like the know. most generous version of Paul kind of looking at things through the rose-colored glasses. It's like, yes, it's like, I have this beautiful road ahead with Linda. Everything is so relaxing and cool and easy with her. And then he just sort of like turns his head ar- around and looks back for a second, like... I love you too. Yeah. Just so you know. That was beautiful too. There's there's no hard feelings about it. You know, there's there's no bitterness. No, no. I think that's a great point that, you know, there's no angst, there's no bitterness in this song. There's definitely nostalgia and sadness. Yes, yes. You know, but it is kind of mixed with a feeling of gratitude because overall there's a positivity to the song, you know? Like he likes where he's going. Yeah, and you he know, likes where he's headed. And Paul, yeah, he likes where he's headed. There, it's good. It is, and, and and honestly, like I think, like we talked about in the last episode, like I think he starts this process of letting go as early as Hey Jude. Yeah, I do too. And by the time we get to let it be, he's closing in on the end. For all the talk about Paul being so desperate to keep them together, he's obviously writing songs about loss. You know, it's like Long and Winding Road is, there's a helplessness yes, yes, I give it, yes. to it. Like, I've tried. But I mean, in fairness, in fairness, it's like, if this is, a the, whatever the issue is with John and Paul, like, we don't know all the 
dirty details of you know like their feelings or whatever happens or yeah you know. but if it is if it isn't at its core it's an unresolvable issue yoko aside like just taking her out of the equation for a minute what's the problem between john and paul like why i'm saying if their breakup is inevitable or whatever like why Because Long and Winding Road kind of describes almost like, a, a, you know, we've circled this issue a thousand times. Like, we've, we've been through this. We keep coming back to the same place. Yeah. It always leads me here to your door. It's like, I, I, we can't get out of here. Right. Whatever, whatever the problem is, we're stuck in it. So we can't, we have just got to... What's the resolution to? I mean, what's the resolution here? We're, we're, we're going to dump Yoko and Linda and run off together? Right. Yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at Paul's songs, you know, y- you actually in our discussions, I think that we started to see things differently, which was he's almost going through a, a grieving process. Or a letting go yes. process with these songs, you know, let it be. He writes when Linda, he, he actually writes in the fall when, after she comes to visit him. And I, I find yeah, that interesting yeah. that he's yeah. probably extremely stressed out in the White Album. And then she comes and he decides to let go a little bit, you know, to let it be. And then during this time, he's got um, The Two of Us, which again is inspired partly by her. He's happy about this new relationship and then saying goodbye to the other. And then the long and winding road is there's something that can't be resolved. We're at an impasse. I'll always love you. But long and winding road kind of acknowledges that, like, I really will still kind of carry a sadness with me, you know. Forever. Yes. Forever. Right. Exactly. Like this. Just so you know, I mean, it's not I haven't shut the door on you. Yeah, that there'll, there'll always be ties between us, you know, that my, my the, the road always leads back to you and me. Right. He's kind of saying, look, I've tried. He says both. You'll never know and you've always known. I mean, both are true. When he says, anyway, you've always known, He's he, that's almost admonishing. He's like, come on, John, stop. You know that yeah. this is hard for me. And then, and then he sort of, he... He thinks about it and he rewrites it, and he's like, "You don't even know." I, I honestly think that that is partly to tell John too. Yeah. Well, it's like, don't you know? Like, please don't misunderstand. Don't think that it doesn't hurt me. And we see later that John rejects some of these songs. You know, he rejects, he rejects Let It Be, just says that he had nothing to do with it. And I think you're right that I, we have posited or hypothesized that he's done a lot to get attention, to get control, to get Paul's appreciation and love. And then Paul all of a sudden seems to be, even though he may not have mentally processed this, because he still seems to have been committed to the Beatles, he seems to be writing songs that are giving up. I mean, I mean, of course, with, you know, the McCartney way to give up, right? Which is that, like, with Let It Be... There's optimism. You know, in a way that's similar to right. Hey Jude. 
but but let it be is a fucking heavy song i mean right. you know there's just something in those chords that's like you feel like the passing of your ancestors yeah, it's true. It's, it's, you know it's, like it's, it's it's like religious and spiritual you know yeah it's also extremely profound you know i think that sometimes paul taps into a greater wisdom like a creative consciousness and this actually is very aligned with deeper spiritual teachings that sometimes the smartest thing to do is to let the universe unfold and to give up some control and let things unfold as they may and you know and i think that's why a lot of people love the song that they're that sometimes you just have to give in and let things happen and it's interesting that he does this he writes this after linda comes and i think maybe that it was a point where he just stopped fighting the situation and said okay let's see what happens there'll be an answer like and then later that and when the night is cloudy there was still a light that shines on me that's more him that's more him just sort of being like okay i'll survive well here's the other thing one of the factors at the heart of why john has problems with let it be and the long and winding road okay i think there's a deeper issue about like what the songs are saying to him that he that he doesn't like but i think the other issue is that paul has excluded him i think john feels like paul is precious about his songs and He's possessive about his songs right now. He doesn't want me to touch Let It Be. I'm not allowed to like make a suggestion about Let It Be or Long and Winding Road or, you know, the definitely. Yeah, I mean, that that's consistent with what he says later about Let It Be, you know, which I've always puzzled about the fact that it, it was really, it wasn't a Beatles song. It may as well have been a Wings song, which was like, yes, this right. wasn't even your last album. Like, what are you talking about, John? You all well, participated in it. There's no been, reason yeah. to write that song off. It's as much of a song as any of the other ones that they did. And so the fact that he considers that not part of him you yes. know or the beatles says something about that song yeah i think that's exactly what it's about could it be that's paul nothing what can the you beatles. say nothing to do with the beatles no it could have been wings right yeah except it i mean that was the one that everybody said was the statement after paul oh i have no idea See, i don't know what he's yeah. thinking when he writes that it be and then when it was time to record, it's like, oh, okay, you're just going to hand us the sheet music and we're just going to be your backing dickheads. That's the biggest hurt that John has. Right. Is when he is when Paul shuts him out of stuff. Right. I mean, we see that with Eleanor Rigby, but we also see that with the White Album. You know, that one example they have of Mother Nature's Son, how it became so stressful when John sort of flings the door open dramatically. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the engineers talk about all the tension when he's like, what the fuck? Are you recording this without us? Well, and this gets to a bigger problem, which is that I think they both are dying to write together still but they're but things are so fucked up and awkward and weird between them and i mean there's some pride there too like they're both proud and neither one of them wants to grovel to the other right because john stuck this wedge between him and paul for whatever reason because maybe the emotional interpersonal stuff was too intense for him and he was too sensitive about it and like he couldn't fucking deal too sensitive so he, about it yeah Right? Yes, right. Yeah, right. so he's got to bring, you know, his girl. 
to protect him all the time. You know, another thing is that as opposed to Let It Be, which John professes not to like, John does actually like two of us, at least in this early stage where they're right. singing it together. There's even that audio where he asks Paul, like, am I singing on this? And Paul's like, yeah. you know the fucking lyrics? Okay. What no. am I singing on this? I don't know, really. Uh, melody. Two of us, you have to remember the words, too. Yes, I've got them here. But learn them. Yeah. I almost know. And that and that's the song that prompts John to say like it's like uh, we're a couple of queens. Yeah. He starts singing to him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean John's reading into the song potentially, or there's something that he likes about the song anyways. Um but then you see it John talk about the song in nineteen eighty and even though nobody asked him he said well that has nothing to do with me you know that's not about me it has nothing to do with me and you see this disconnection disassociation with the song he specifically says that's about linda and nothing to do with me and the way it reads is it's a little bit bitter but the fact that nobody asked him that and then he spells that out well why, is well, why like nothing to do with me okay well what what? Are <laughs> they supposed you, to be about you? Do, do the songs have to be about you? Why are right. what, what, what is Paul not allowed to write a song to his wife? Like, <laughs> is that strange? It's interesting too because it's the one song that Linda claims. You know, she never claimed song, but she actually says that you know that this song is talking about when they first got together. John says that they communicate through lyrics, so he's listening to the lyrics. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't, we don't really know what he thinks, but the fact that he seemed to really embrace it and by 1980s is saying it has nothing to do with him is probably telling. Can we talk about Oh yep. Darling for a minute? It's interesting. So, you know, if he's grieving and letting go, and that's part of the theme, which we believe is, is happening with Paul, then where does this fit into it? He's sort of taking a step back and accepting the situation and yet i think he is throwing a lifeline to john and letting him know that he loves him and he doesn't want john to leave you know that this is this is still a line like even though he may be accepting the situation he's still throwing a line to john saying you know please don't leave i still love our partnership i still want to be in this and john loves it you know like john is all in on this song yeah yeah, he really embraces it. He said in 1980, he said that was a great song of Paul's. He and John sang it as a duet for a long time. I mean, there were several takes of them singing yeah, it together. I actually think it sounds great with them together. Well, he said that was a, a, a great one of Paul's, which is fairly effusive for this period, yeah. Yeah. time period. And also, like, Paul has a lot of songs... I'm not saying Oh Darling sucks. I'm just saying he has a lot that sort of right, outshine right. Like Oh Darling, Let it be, right? which John is like, that could be a wing song. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When Paul is basically grieving privately and, and letting go and accepting things, John, you know, disassociates with Let, let It Be. Whereas this song where Paul is throwing out a lifeline and, and being open and saying, please don't leave me, you know, you know, I need you. This is what John responds well to. 
yeah, it's like John is like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah, I can get into that. And the thing is that when, when John and Paul are singing it together, none of their, there's no desperation. No, there's, there isn't. It, it's like, it's almost like a mutual promise when they start singing it together yeah. initially. Yeah. You know, that the, they're both in it. They're both, you know, I think they, they both like the, the 50s kind of style and they're playing with it. But it, to me, it's kind of like, you know, Paul is saying, don't leave me. And John was responding, never leave me. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a reconnection almost. Okay, so we know that John likes it, right? They're enjoying singing it together. And then at some point, you know, it, it, it morphs from a harmony to a call and response. And then eventually, by the time it gets to Abbey Road, you, since it doesn't make it onto the Let It Be album, by the time it, they record Abbey Road, it's become a solo effort. Right, by which Paul. is kind of the trajectory of their relationship. Yeah, John's not involved in it at all anymore. He's not even, there, there's not right. even a back. Which is too bad because I love them together. And, you know, and John clearly is not happy about this since he's, he continues to cl- complain that he should have sung the song, which in itself is weird. Because, yes, John is good at that 50s right. style, but, you know, it's, it's again, not one of best Paul's best songs. I think that there's something more. I think that it's interesting. Like, why does he want to sing this song? There is a reason for that. You know, when was the last time Paul wrote a song that John sung? You know, so the fact that John specifically wants to sing that song to me suggests that right. there's something going on with that song. And it could be, I mean, my guess would be that... The words are meaningful to John, too, that whatever Paul was expressing, that maybe John wants to sing as well because they express his feelings as well. The Let It Be and the Long and Winding Road is kind of like accepting where things are going, maybe even if it's just subconsciously that he's grieving and letting go. You know, I think that, you know, he understands that's the way things are going. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to try and salvage and, you know, try and give it a shot to save things. And at least this is him making a stand and putting it out there so John knows. And it's interesting because John responds well to this. You know, John, it's not like, it's not like, you know, the Jean Jackets would have you believe that Paul is pining and throwing this out and John's, you know, off in a corner with Yoko. I mean, this is when Paul gets John very engaged and John is singing with him. Yeah. Passionately. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of suggest that, like, John is open to being wooed. Yes, romance. Yeah, Yeah. like, he, he wants that. He wants to be wooed back, you know. He's right. like, if, if you're wooing, I'm listening. I'm all ears. <laughs> That's right. I, I am in. You can see like a step backwards from John. Okay, I'm listening. Okay, so now I got to ask, what do you make of John's announcement in one of these takes that Yoko's divorce has gone through and that he's free to get married now? Yeah, that he sings into this song. Um it's like he's interrupting this dialogue that that Paul and John are apparently this call and response, yeah, in this song to yeah. then insert this information. 
So I think the jean jacket version or the the whatever version would be. It doesn't mean it, anything. No, they would. I've seen you know, it written. Like, what, what, that, why wouldn't that it? it that, that yeah, John's yeah. Happy. Like he's yes. just excited. So of course he's interrupting this song that he and Paul have been working on to announce to no one for no reason that he's like G's just an arrogant asshole so of course he's like taking the time out in the middle of Paul's song to make personal announcements about like what would the equivalent be like they're in the middle of rehearsing one of one of John's songs and then Paul's just like hey uh just making a general announcement for no particular reason that um just to remind everybody that I'm single right now and I am dating someone who I'm serious with if I do want to marry her there is nothing stopping me at this time I just want to like make sure that everybody realizes what's going on right now There's nothing weird about that right nobody would take any issue with that I'm sure just uh the Yoko's divorce has just gone through could be a heads up to Paul that marriage to Yoko is now on the table in like a speak now or forever hold your peace kind of way um, because it that would fit with the theme of don't let me down if if don't let me down is like a, a make or break situation right for John and Paul then then it would make sense that John would warn Paul that if he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't do anything and he does let John down, that the outcome of that inaction on Paul's part would be that John marries Yoko, right? That would also be supported by the fact that after they rap, let it be, John doesn't rush out to marry Yoko, right? And he doesn't do, he doesn't, he doesn't even set set the wheels in motion until Paul gets married in March. Right. It's an odd thing to be dropping, uh, you know, point to be dropping and then do nothing about, like, I'm super excited about this and then I'm going to do nothing. Right. And I don't, and I don't make any moves until you go ahead and make the decision. You make the final move, right. That set that sets all of this in, in motion. And again, I mean, it could be none of this. But I'm saying, if it is what's happening, then it certainly all makes sense. Yeah. If the if that's the scenario, right? It is consistent. Yeah. I mean, it tell it's 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 it paints a clear picture. And and by the way, I'm not I'm not saying that John definitely would have dumped Yoko on the spot. I tend to think that this is more just like a hail mary pass on John's part. You know, where is this going? Like, where is this all going? So I think that's like part of like the, the sort of um, the sort of like like stressed out, deflated part of Paul is just like I, this is unfucking winnable. Yeah, I, I, there's no move for me to make here. Right. I mean, you know, you kind of I think he's kind of like 
what fucking games are you playing, John? What do you even want? You know, and, and I don't know necessarily if John has thought it through fully. I think he just knows he wants romance. He wants to be appreciated and loved and proved that to and fought over. So, you know, the, the, the famous story about John when he's a boy and his parents took him out to Blackpool to, like, have a day at the beach or whatever. Yeah. And allegedly, I mean, I say allegedly because this is kind of folklore at this point. There's some debate as to whether this incident actually happened. But in any case, it's the story John was told in the mid-60s. And so he's internalized it as part of his autobiography by 1969. But allegedly they were trying to decide who's going to keep John, right? Because they weren't together anymore. And so they put John in the middle and they made him choose. And John, who had had a fun day at the beach with his daddy, chose his daddy. Well, you know, and I think that it's it's been said that he chose his dad, hoping that his mom would fight for him. So maybe just on an unconscious level. Again, I'm not, you know, I, I think people overdo it when it comes to like drawing the parallels with the childhood and you know right um certainly this might have taught him an unconscious lesson you know yeah that's that's exactly it that's that's where i'm going with this like in this case julia accepted john's choice and was upset but she didn't fight and you see that kind of repeat with paul that he's upset but accepts the situation and and in both those cases i think fundamentally what he's looking for is proof that they care you know like john says that later on we talked about that in our last episode that you know the worst pain for him is knowing that he wants his parents and needs his parents more than they need him and so he wants proof yeah well and for some reason this all gets kicked up really really hard immediately after paul leaves right when he goes into therapy and basically you know goes back to this period, to relives this trauma. Yeah. When he goes into intense lockdown therapy for months. Right. And then apparently, according to people around, said after, you know, ends up ranting about Julia, Mimi, Alf, and Paul. So somehow Paul is very connected to this group of people. Yeah. And what they've done to him, you know? Yeah. My one and only prayer is that someday you'll care. You see that John, you know, John is setting up these scenarios where he wants proof that he's wanted and needed and wants somebody to act and step it up, you know? And so that's kind of like, we're not seeing any grieving songs from John. We're not seeing letting go from John at this point. Whereas we are seeing from Paul, it's almost like Paul is processing in real time. You know, he's looking, he's surveying the situation and he's feeling it and he's starting to understand he needs to let go, even though he doesn't want it. And even though he's still throwing out lifelines, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why people think that this is so much harder for Paul is because he we're watching, is feeling it. Yeah. We're yeah. watching him deal with it. And I just get the sense that John has not accepted the situation. He's still, he's still wanting 
it to be fixed and still throwing out scenarios of if you step up and if it's, everything wasn't the way that you wanted it to be, that maybe things would be better. And, you know, and I think that maybe John thinks he's got some control and power in this situation. Like he's the one that's putting the pressure on. Yes. Yeah. He's like, Paul isn't going anywhere. Yes. He has no reason to process it. You know, like Paul's not threatening to leave. So that's he doesn't right. have to be sad. Paul's saying, please stay. I'd like it if you stayed. Um, meanwhile, I think that, but it must be confusing. You know, Paul's probably sending mixed messages to John because at the same time, he's also writing sad songs about the fact that, you know, it's not going to work out. But, but that's the question is like, we think that we see Paul's pain and, and, you know, because we watch Let It Be and we see like a Paul that's stressed and he looks, you know, pretty with the, the beard and the, and the, you know, soulful eyes and all that type of stuff. And yeah, you know, it's, an, that's interesting. One, one thing that I used to always think is how can John not see Paul's pain? You know, how can John not be responding more to Paul during this time? Because clearly Paul feels this way. But there's a lot of accounts that Paul is pretty cocky during this period, too. So yeah. I don't I don't think that Paul's always, you know, I think Paul's pretty confident with his creative abilities at this point. I mean, he's just producing, like, crazy amounts of great work at this time. And he seems to be pretty creatively confident. Well, and here's the other thing is that we watch Paul and we're like, well, he looks really stressed out and sad and heartbroken and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, is he hiding that from John, though? All these, all the takes where he's working out Let It Be and Long and Winding Road, John is not around. Yeah, I think I think that that's a good point. That I think that, you know, part of him is just cocky at this point and part of him is hurt, but he's probably hiding a lot of that. From John, I mean, he's proud too, you know. So, right. I mean, he's not, to, he's not he's not totally hiding it because other people can see it. But but every he, conversation that John and Paul have, I mean, there's not a single. We've got we've got conversations of Paul giving John a a, a passionate pep talk. Yep, like we've, almost mentoring him. Yeah, we've got Paul bitching at John for not bringing in more songs. For not knowing the lyrics to his songs. Yeah, exactly. To up, we've know? got we've got Paul saying, "Learn the lyrics if, if you want to sing on my song." Yeah. So and then you know it, it does connect to what John says later. You know, a year later, that he feels better <laughs> with his champions Specter and Klein and Yoko, who love him, unlike those other bastards that I used to play with. Basically, you know, which suggests that John just did not feel loved by Paul, right? Yeah. And so as much as I think that Paul wants the band to continue, I think that John being more verbal and more interested in the interpersonal is trying to connect with Paul. And for some reason, Paul doesn't pick up on it and run with it. And it, I think it's actually very illuminating because this might, if if this is, here's a question, it's like, is this atypical or is this typical for how they are? Because if it's typical, then it might shed light on how they got into that situation in like 
1967 or 1968, you know, where John yes. is like, I'm, I'm trying to talk to you and I'm, Hey, I'm over here. You're yeah. not listening to me. Right. He says this, listen to me in songs. He says, do you see me at all? Do you hear me? You know, um, we, we don't think that Paul is actually like autistic or whatever, but, <laughs> but he does have, I'm serious. I think there's like a, there's a small part of him that is better at expressing himself through music than through words and i think sometimes he shuts off parts of his brain or he he just kind of he goes into a box right where he's right. in music mode he's not listening to you know it's like i, I think agree. john would have to like grab him and get in his face again paul is clearly not he is connected to his feelings because he's able to express them well and empathize and channel them into his music but I don't know whether it's he gets into almost like a manic, you know, production, I need to get this music out yeah. kind of mindset. And he has since, you know, in the early 80s, he talks about the fact that he has realized that he has been hugely insensitive and he didn't even realize right. it. And he's hurting, yeah. you know, he's like, oh, my God, how many people did I hurt along the way? And I think it's extreme focus yes. on getting you know, the result that he's looking for and being so focused on the music that he is not paying attention to the interpersonal. That's and exactly it. I mean, well, and again, you know, not to like go off on a whole thing about psychoanalyzing Paul, but like, for God's sake, every single Beatle author psychoanalyzes John. Yes. Every single one. And they all talk about his childhood trauma and how, you know, whatever, he's thinking about Julia and he wants his yeah. mom and all that sort of stuff. But like, to look at Paul's childhood trauma for five seconds, okay? Yep. He he learned as a coping mechanism, as something he was instructed to do as a child, right. something he was forced to do, and like just a means of survival, growing up as a fucking, like a sensitive artist in a rough neighborhood or whatever. Yeah. You know, he has learned to shove his fucking feelings way, way down. Right. Way down. So he is not walking. Like, I think there's a perception of Paul, like he's this, you know, soft, in touch with his emotions, Phil Donahue type guy. And he's not <laughs> that. You know what I mean? But really, like, I, I think that is an extreme mischaracterization. It, it, You know what? And I think it's a really important thing to, you know, the story of Paul's mother's death is that, you know, they weren't given any information about this. It happened very suddenly. He, he and his brother were, you know, sort of pawned off on his relatives while his, his father grieved. And they were sort of, you know, the, the story is that they were acting out and they were shut down. Like, you know, you don't want to upset your father. So there's yeah. this sense of your emotions will bother other people. Yes. And so I think culturally at that time, he was actually told to yes. keep it inside and put on a brave face. And he has said that he learned to put on, you know, to, to create a shell around himself. When this happens to children of this age, because Paul still was a child, an early adolescent, that that is a very typical thing, that they tend to have walls. Yeah. And so as much as people think that Paul is, you know, this warm and, you know, open and touchy-feely guy. I think that the reality is that John was the much more open and communicative one. Yes. And was frustrated maybe by Paul's inability to truly connect with him on an interpersonal level when they're not playing music. 
I think when Paul plays music, he opens up, right? Yes, that's beautifully put. Maybe one of the things that's keeping John in the band, besides the fact that I do believe that he loves the Beatles, right. you know, wants, wants, to, wants to be in the band, yes. Wants to remain a Beatle. Mm-hmm. Um, part of John's leverage is that that without the four of them, they won't, they can't be the Beatles, and they know that. And John knows that Paul loves the Beatles. I mean, suspects that he loves the Beatles may way more than he loves John, right? Oh, I definitely agree that I think that that's why he thinks he's got some control in this situation because he wants proof that Paul loves him, but he knows that Paul loves the Beatles and he doesn't want them to break up. Yeah. And so, so that's why I think that John thinks he's got the upper hand at this point. Well, that's what I'm he, saying. See, he's, it's like John is using the Beatles as hostages, kind of. It's true. I mean, he's got Yoko, so he's like, well, I could leave. So he's been dangling this in front of Paul for, you know, for the loaded gun for six months. I could leave. I don't need to be here. Right. Just so you know. And he knows that Paul doesn't want him to leave, but also really loves the Beatles. So, you know, Paul's... He knows that John is expecting action, so he has agency. But on the other hand, John is holding a lot of the cards because Paul, he has something that Paul wants, which is for the Beatles to continue. And John is acting like he doesn't care. I think he does, but right. that's what he's putting forward, is that he doesn't care at this point. So Paul better act right. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why he's not processing this, is because he thinks... He's got power and leverage. This period, as as opposed to being a period where John was done and not creatively interested, I think that this is a period where, you know, that John complains that they are sidemen, they become sidemen to Paul. And while we don't think that that is necessarily true, and we'll talk about that, we think that there's an emotional underpinning to that, that for some reason Paul and John have become unequal at some point. He keeps trying to provoke Paul to get dirty with him again, like to get in it with him again, to to fight, to get emotional, not to be in this position of like semi-producer, semi-manager, you know, composer on his own. Get down in the in the mud with me and Paul's only willing to get so far in the mud in some ways. I mean, I do think that Paul wants to find the old chemistry. Yeah. But at the cost of diminishing his own light, I don't think so. I think that, you know, all that we're trying to get to here is like, it's like a, it's a longing for the, the, the dynamic, the connection that they once had. But I think finally at 1968, John decides, fuck it, I'm not going to, we're not going to get there. I, like you said, the, the, the howling at the moon, he's like, it's been long enough. And yeah. makes it, you know, and it's like, I'm, this is killing me. And so he makes a move, and then I honestly think that, this is just my reading, but it just, you know, given all the, the dissection that we've done, I don't think that John has given up yet. He's like, I, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to m- maneuver it to make you fight. You know? I def- no, of course he hasn't given up. It's only been like six months. Yes, yes. Since he, since he tried to walk away, yeah. and I don't think he, in, in May of 68... I definitely do not think that he made that move because he was bored with Paul 
and done. No. No. I, I'm not even close. He was like, come hell or high water. Like, <laughs> I'm going to make you notice me. And either this will work or it won't. All I want is you. Remember when he talks about the, he's talked about this in a couple of different ways in the 70s about the fact that, you know, maybe some marriages had to end, but maybe they could have gone forward. And maybe had we uh, gone on together, maybe something more interesting would have come out of it. It would not have been the same, it would have been a, a different thing, but maybe it wouldn't either. Maybe it was a marriage that had to end, you know, some marriages don't get through that, that, that phase. I sometimes get the uh, the sense when I hear that that he's sort of thinking, "Did I overreact? You know, like did I pull the plug too soon?" Um, instead of letting things continue, and then he makes that other comment about going up the hill, and that sometimes it's just you know it's just too hard to go back up the hill. Also, with small things like your life here and your relationship with with the with the person you want to live with and be with, yeah. that, that, that there are laws governing that relationship too. And you can either give up halfway up the hill and say, I don't want to climb this mountain, it's too tough, or I'm going to go back to the bottom and start again. And again, to me, that, that suggests that they gave up and that he, he's kind of like, did we just give up too soon? To me. Yeah. You know, even though Paul's singing Get Back, I think John's maneuvering is to try and get them back to the old chemistry and closeness and level of attraction or, or change the power dynamic and bring them back to a more equal stance. And all of this plays out in some fascinating and unexpected ways, resulting in some of the greatest mysteries and hottest debates in Beatles lore. Coming up next in part two. We'll discuss the Beatles becoming Paul's sidemen, which John claims is one of the causes of the breakup. We'll attempt to get underneath that. We'll also look at how Paul's reacting to John and John's drug use. We'll address some of the jealousy issues between them. And finally, why Paul is not actually fighting. We know Paul wants to stay in the band. We know he wants to stay partners with John. And so why isn't he fighting tooth and nail to respond when John's throwing out all of these provocations and signals that he wants Paul to fight? End of part one. Intermission. Please stay seated.